I actually no, it's okay actually. Are we going to get through this whole episode without saying how the many C-word? times let's, let's try do we our think we'll say coronavirus in this episode? Let's be optimistic and say by the time you release this, we won't be talking about it anymore. Yeah, I mean for real, for real. <laughs> so let's make a timeless, okay? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And welcome to Not Safe for Publication, a podcast about the lighter side of humanities research. I'm Georgia. I'm Jessica. And with us today is Anne. Hello, everyone. Anne is a returning guest. Our first one of these. We're hoping to do a few of these uh, now that we've, as a podcast, been running for about a year to sort of check in with people roughly a year after they were first on the podcast and find out about how their PhD journey is going and hopefully sort of talk around a particular topic so we're excited to have Anne back go back and listen to her episode again it's funny (laughs) thanks for having me back um I didn't listen to your first podcast even though I know your research intimately could you tell someone who hasn't listened to the podcast what your research is about sure so I'm kind of in a funny space where I'm in between history and kind of museum studies I'm looking at the representation of the civil rights and black power movements in the U.S. in museums and heritage sites so looking at not just museums but statues and historical markers kind of to see what narrative sites present and if they've kept up with the scholarship on civil rights and black power and one of the things that we wanted to talk to you about today is that since we were last all together in the studio you've done like a relatively big research trip so it'd be really interesting to hear about sort of where you went and what you did. Yeah it was a really great experience. I went to the south of the United States so started in Washington DC and then moved on to Alabama, visited Montgomery and Birmingham and then went to Atlanta, Georgia. So it was a cultural shock. I had been to DC but never really the deep south as they call it in the US so it was a really eye-opening experience. Did you presumably visited particular sites and spaces and markets? Any particularly notable ones? Yeah so the probably the biggest one on my list was the new Smithsonian Museum of African It's meant to be amazing. Yeah in DC so that opened in 2016 I believe um and for the first like year year and a half it was almost impossible to get tickets. It's free to visit but it was just so popular. So I feel like I was there at a good time. It was still incredibly busy, but probably one of the most nuanced museums I'd visited in a long time. Spent about six or seven hours there. Um, Yeah. Your feet must have been killing. Oh, yeah. Thankfully, (laughs) they have a really good cafe, like in the middle section. There's like some of the best food I've ever had. So So you said from there that you went to Alabama. That's right. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, Alabama was interesting. (laughs) (laughs) I think for my research, it is probably one of the most important places to visit. Um, Montgomery, in addition to being home to the bus boycott, was the capital of the Confederacy before it moved to Richmond, Virginia. So it kind of has this paradox of these, like being a shrine basically to the Confederacy, but then these newer sites to civil rights and to African American history kind of popping up. Even uh, a new site to Rosa Parks was unveiled at the end of last year. So this is like ever evolving. Yet kind of these statues to the Confederacy remain large in part because there's a big fine in place if anyone attempts to remove them. 
what the Confederacy. Right. right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, why was Alabama so interesting? I think um, the people, the people in that part of the U.S. are some of the friendliest people I think I've ever encountered in my life. <laughs> <laughs> and being um, a, us too excluded. Yes, well, <laughs> it's not the same as British people. You must admit, and like me being from Canada and living in the U.K., people are friendly, but they kind of stick to themselves. Whereas, like this was. Friendly in a sense, that it was like, wow, this I would never ask a person. <laughs> For example, I was in one museum just taking a bunch of notes in my notebook, and this woman kind of came up and was like, what you writing in there? What are you, what are you doing here? And just kind of, you know, no shame and just striking up this conversation in this dead quiet museum. <laughs> I read this thing about this. I don't know. I suppose that Canada kind of bucks the trend on this, but that if you are from a place where there's quite a lot of space for people, it's considered to be very polite to take a lot of interest in them and ask them about themselves and be very involved in them. And if you are from a country like Britain or Japan, where people kind of have to live in each other's pockets just through the lack of geographical space, it's considered polite to give people a lot of privacy. That's really interesting. Yeah, It makes sense now that you say it like that. Like making up for kind of the physical gap yeah. by trying to like forge kind of friendships or relationships. But at the same time, I do love some gossip. So maybe like our need for interaction comes about through like toxic interest in people's <laughs> sure, personal, intimate personal details. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that being said, it was a good, for that reason, a good site to visit. I was on my own for this chunk, which can be quite isolating doing a research mm. trip by yourself. How so. long was the trip in total? two weeks oh okay yeah and I was oh on my, that's so quick yeah so sure. i was on my own for about a week and a half of it um so it was kind of nice like you'd go out to a restaurant or like i said be in a museum and people would want to talk to you and you kind of hadn't really talked to anyone all day because you're just in a museum taking notes taking photos yeah archival work is so isolating mm-hmm. anyway even if you're just like down the road at manchester central library being in a foreign country and then georgia doing it in vietnam uh, yeah i mean my experience in vietnam was probably in a weird way really similar to your experience in alabama oh yeah um, in that i mean the thing is when you are in vietnam it is everyone knows that you're a tourist mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, at least uh, for the listener at home i'm white <laughs> um so it does notice <laughs> that i am not from vietnam <laughs> Um, so people would just come right up to you and talk to you and especially uh, further north in Hanoi like everyone was super super friendly but on the advice of my supervisor who I think was being excessively cautious I wasn't really allowed to say that I was there as a researcher Um, so I was sort of I was at once being a tourist and also sort of pretending to be a tourist (laughs) Uh, because yeah she basically said that I shouldn't take any evidence that shows that I'm researching the war from any perspective other than very positive on the North Vietnamese side because it is still a communist government there and there is still like a very big there is quite a lot of control of the narrative like if the museums there are very uh, partisan Mm -hmm. they have a point of view and it's you know that was part of what i went to see but at the same time i had to be yeah it was quite a weird experience of sort of pretending to be doing what i was really doing which is really just there sort of soaking up the country off that i'd been there because i'd say that's the question i get asked the most you Mm -hmm. tell someone you're researching vietnam they're like oh have you been Mm -hmm. 
and now I can say yes. <laughs> but I imagine that's quite a good thing coming from kind of a Western education to see it represented in any other way. I feel like maybe in North America it's different, but it is incredibly biased, the, the story that we're fed. Yeah, and it's a very, um, I mean, any conflict is extremely complicated and any side will have their own take on it. But it's very interesting, I think, to contrast the sort of bias that you get from the Western perspective with the bias that exists in Vietnam and realise that probably no one is getting anything even close to the true story, yeah. the so-called true story. Yeah, so Jess, you were talking about sort of archival research and travelling. Well, yeah, I haven't done any international travel because... Well, the first I go for just for fun. First I go to London. (laughs) So exotic. But we were talking about just like traveling for academic stuff in general. Um, I went to Vancouver. Oh yeah. Yeah. Pretty big deal, like in your first year. It was a big deal. It was quite a big deal personally because I went to New York three years ago, but that was just for like ten days with Mm. my sister. Well, yeah, and um, yeah, Vancouver was like an experience because it was. So it was like an international conference. So you just meet people, yeah, from all over the world doing different things. But yeah. you're all kind of united. by. So this was a British studies conference, but most of the people there were from North America. Uh, yeah, it was so eye-opening. And just being in a new country was amazing. I loved it. Yeah, It's interesting. You kind of had the experience that I have here doing American studies in the UK. Yeah, yeah, yeah going to all these weird. studies of Americanists, but everyone's British. Yeah, and I, uh, as part of the Vietnam trip, I also went to an international conference in Australia. Mm. Uh, and yeah, it was, that was a really interesting one because it's, uh, it was the 30th of the history of children and youth. Um, but it, there weren't that many Australians there in the, in the grand scheme of things. Like it was, people had, not many people had come from the UK. <laughs> um, quite a lot of people had come from America often combining it with a holiday in Hawaii. <laughs> sure. <laughs> but yeah, like going to a big international conference like that is, I think it's at once something really nice to cross off, but also something to sort of try and get the most out of. Sure, yeah. I think while you're a young academic, I, re- I mean, I really liked it because I got to meet other young academics right. and I just love to socialize yeah. but um network basically. yeah and then also just like meeting <laughs> uh, seeing like it was a, if you're like a complete dork like me it was like sit, going to like a festival and there was like one panel with like three of the biggest people in the field and I was just like oh my god Dante, Coachella yeah, it was literally like yeah. <laughs> Coachella. I was just like this is such a huge deal I want their autograph you're um, such a nerd I, yeah. know, but I, it, I mean that's kind of why I enjoyed it um, you're in the right place I yeah. think. you're doing the right thing <laughs> I don't know like I mean I was in a relationship at the time but I bet there's something like probably like loads of like sexual dynamics going on like these the things. Olympics <laughs> <laughs> yeah literally like Olympic Village like imagine that hotel I mean oh, I didn't have enough money to stay in the hotel of the conference but I can just bet it just got rowdy yeah yeah <laughs> there's a lot of drinking events yeah I find conferences I really enjoy them but I don't think I have like the keenness as you do Jess because I find them quite socially exhausting like I kind of have to get myself hyped to go be in a room full of historians that only want to talk about history yeah and I'm always a bit afraid when I do see someone who I whose work I admire. I never go talk to them. I mean, yeah, I think the alcohol helps. In yeah, that. that's true. That's yeah. good. But like, not not always. Obviously, you just got to be a bit like, 
I don't know. I don't just walk up straight to like, you know, a famous historian. Like, hey, how's it going? Mm -hmm. You just need like an in. Yeah, you need someone to. Yeah. I do. I, I am a big old extrovert, which I'd say is true of all three of us, really. Like, all three of us get on well in social yeah, situations. Yeah, I, I find it true. fairly easy. But at the the thing that gets to me about conference socialising, or I'm doing air quotes, networking, mm-hmm. uh, is just saying the same thing over and over yes. again. Having the same conversation a dozen times. I do very quickly find myself feeling bored and feeling like I'm having quite shallow interactions with yeah. people and yeah I'll it doesn't it doesn't like suit the way that I actually want to relate to people so that I end up being absolutely rubbish at networking so I'll sit down next to someone at the conference lunch and be like so what question has no one asked you today yeah <laughs> that's, like, that's good though but it's also hard because I don't think any of us here, nor should anyone think of what they research as their whole self. And I think like those conversations you have are purely about that. And I just feel like that's so, it's just barely scratching the surface. Yeah, I think if anything, and I know we've spoken about this outside of this room, this is very much our Monday to Friday, nine yeah. to five, and like treating it any, any more than that. Like obviously we have like a passion, mm-hmm. but um, anything more than that, I can't relate to. And that's kind of like sometimes why I feel like they should interview PhD students before offering a, them a place, because I think it's really important to have a social skills and not be so into the work that you actually can't end up communicating with yeah. people. Yeah. Yeah. It's not sustainable to be so into your work that you don't know how to be like a, a human being who can co- interact with people. Yeah, yeah, and just someone with, I know we, we kind of hear this expression, but actually a work-life balance. Mm. I think you've sort of drawn attention to something which I hadn't thought about, but the three of us are kind of quite similar people in terms of our journey to PhD. We've all had jobs before, yeah. and we've all got quite a specific relationship with our work. I don't think any of us really are weekend workers no. or evening workers. And do you feel like having quite a rigid approach to your work is kind of helped you uh in the last year i do i mean it's always the feeling of i could be doing more i think we all feel like that but i think like what i've tried to do instead of saying i need to be have my butt in a chair for eight hours i just set myself tasks for the day and once those are done and i feel good about it can call it a day i think i need to do more because i'm definitely sort of person it's like oh if i do sit in the chair for eight hours then i'll know that at least something would have gone in Mm -hmm. and i my day's tasks will be like read three kind of texts whereas often or not I can actually only manage two and I'm still not actually aware of how much I can do in a day I think I give myself kind of I've got like a general outline that I have that I want to get this done by this date in Mm -hmm. like four weeks time and I know how to get there obviously like it takes practice knowing what your work you can do like within a certain amount of time but yeah it's hard I've only figured I think I'm now figuring out like my best balance like, not everyone works in the same way, no. obviously. Yeah. It's very strange, I think, to almost be sort of halfway through, roughly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I know. It's helping. Uh, and sort of just now be figuring out how I work, especially because... And work and staying like a normal, happy human being. Yeah. yeah. Like staying healthy <laughs> like, and oh, like, staying happy. I, know, like, I, I feel like I'm working probably less strictly and less long and less rigidly and probably not as productive maybe not producing as much maybe but i'm like ten thousand times happier than i was yes. and mm-hmm. i think that that's that a lot it. more important i think i've said it to guests on this podcast i've certainly said it to people in person but 
the productive days aren't worth it if you're just driving yourself towards a breakdown because you'll lose months yeah, yeah. like you know work, work at 60 percent all the time not 100 percent until you die until you crash out i was having a like a right bad bout of writer's block just the other day and it was like when i say writer's block it was like four hours <laughs> where i was like i can't write anything but like you know it could have been a week but then my friend was just like it's not that deep and it's not what we write is just not that deep like it doesn't have to be this huge deal no one else is probably ever going to read our writing just getting it out there yeah. is fine um but you get and i think this is why it's really important to talk about this sort of stuff and just like sit and work in a collective communal zone because you know you get so into like what you're writing and your research that you don't realize that it's not actually a huge deal like it's just a phd thesis yeah and like you are really the only one who will suffer consequences and of course you want to do best for yourself yeah and at some point you just kind of have to think about passing rather than like you can produce something that's going to pass and then make it better don't try and write the best thing you can first out because it just won't work mm -hmm. i'm all about the word vomit method just yeah get it all out there and then go back and read the vomit yeah i'm a i'm a heavy redrafter and i did know that about myself going in which at least is one weapon to have in your arsenal but i just think that nothing can prepare you for what phd is gonna be like no, and but i also think you change I used to be able to write a really good extensive plan and then sit down and write and have the whole thing done within two days. I plan, then I write, and then I go back to my plan, and then like, and then I might write my intro, then I write my, I like, it's like, I just write the stuff that I'm comfortable with and it won't be any specific, specific order. And I just think it's used, and then I, I used to be like, why am I writing this way? This is so not how I'm used to writing, but I actually think you have, you change. As a, as, yeah. as a as a in life as as a scholar you can't just be the same person all the time <laughs> no like you have to evolve yeah. otherwise we'd all be writing it you know first year to, <laughs> to some extent as well i think that's a product of your work becoming more complex what you have to write as an undergrad is not going to be as involved as complicated as personal as what you have to do now so it makes sense that undergraduate work maybe you could sit down and write it start to finish i have literally never been able to do that mm -hmm. oh those were such good days it would just be so easy we were all talking about this the other day how if w us now could go back and just start an undergraduate degree again just how easy it would be like you could just do another subject just from scratch mm -hmm. and and everything that you thought was so stressful and difficult would just seem so easy by comparison yeah. i know i know that's just a it happens when you get older as well. Yeah. Things are not as dramatic as and you also, once thought. And also, we are very privileged in being able to do this. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Let's not forget that's that. That's why like, when people complain about it, it's like, no one's forced you to just PhD I know. And like, just... It doesn't have to be good days all the time, but no. I think on the whole, we yeah. are very lucky. This is, I think, a really important theme that's come out for me this year without putting too fine a point on it, because we're not exactly sure when this episode will be released. It has been a really difficult few weeks, two months yep. for productivity, for socialising, for my mental health, and I think the mental health of others. And the whole time, I, I have still been thinking a bad, a bad week, even a bad month of this is still preferable. It is. And it is a, a drop in the bucket in the grand scheme of things. Like I said, you can't be producing great work every day all day and some days you the work just comes really easily and you just have to kind of 
you just have to ride that wave, mm-hmm. expect it to break. Maybe it doesn't come back for another six months. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> also, no, but like, I mean, I, yesterday, as Georgia knows, I was like, I've written the best paragraph. I'm done for the week. Like, you could just have one week and you've written 250 words, but they could be, like, impeccable. Mm-hmm. And that just puts such a spring in your step that that's enough sometimes. Yeah. I mean, I personally won't give anything to my supervisors unless it's a full draft, yeah. whereas I know some people who just give, like, 2,000 words. So I will, you know, endeavour to get a draft out, whether it's crap or not. But just having, yeah, paragraph under my belt for this week is was like enough to just make me feel. I think keeping things in perspective, it's so hard to do because your world kind of shrinks to the size of PhD. And then not only that, but you're surrounded by people who live PhD life. And on the whole, I'd say that our group of friends do really well at keeping balanced and being sociable we all take really good care of each other which is an absolutely massive thing Mm. but you are still surrounded by people who might be being really stressed about something where you're like oh but i do that or i haven't done that Mm -hmm. and i did that in first year that was definitely a thing like the busy competition or the stress competition yeah well like looking at different working patterns uh was a big one for me To some extent, keep your eyes on your own work and keep your eyes on your own health, but also just kind of recognise that sometimes someone who's going on about how busy they are or how stressed they are is trying to tell you something that isn't that. Mm. They're sort of trying to express their own insecurity or look for some kind of validation Mm -hmm. that it's okay, that they don't feel they're doing very well. And And if you could go back to first-year self, First year PhD, not first year undergrad. What would you do differently? Yeah, one or two things. I think the first thing that I regret, I think I kind of socially isolated myself a little bit for the first chunk of being here. And I think it was because I I felt like everyone else was so much smarter than me. And I didn't want to necessarily spend my like outside of the university time feeling like that all the time. And I didn't want this to kind of consume my whole life. So I would kind of come in, do my work, go hang out with people who are not in academia and I think that was a big mistake and I'm so glad that this year has kind of changed for that I feel much more a part of a community and now you've realized that we're all actually really dumb <laughs> exactly. yeah. it's, I mean we are joking but I think that's actually a really important thing to recognize about your colleagues they will be amazing at one thing it won't be the same thing you're amazing at yes and we all deserve to be here so there's really no reason yeah. I think that. And and I think you shouldn't think of PhDs or any sort of like academia as like a competition of smarts. It's right. another qualification as in you might be really good at carpentry, you might be excellent at surgery, you might be really good at critical thinking. There, there, there's no like rank and this is just it's your training to get to that yeah, thing. Um, so it shouldn't be like, we're a community of really bright sparks. I am not. I'm shit at any quiz. <laughs> I like don't really retain that much information. Like, I, I just know how to write and attack other historians. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm gifted <laughs> at. It's, it's really paid off. You take it on your run with it. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And I will use that money to raise my children. There you go. <laughs> and, yeah. and what was your second thing? Um, I think, and this is something I'm still struggling with, is taking full advantage of supervisor support mm. i kind of i know georgia and i have talked about this i feel like my first year was kind of a waste of time I feel like all the work i did in first year is going to go in the bin and i think it was because i was like afraid to ask for more direction so at the end of the year i submitted something for my panel that 
not gonna lie, it wasn't great. And it wasn't like perceived to be great <laughs> by the people on that panel. So I'll have to start from scratch. But I think like throughout that process, I should have asked for help or mm. instead of just kind of struggling through it. On my own. I also think there's something to be said about the way that Manchester works and that they want you to produce something at the end of your very first year, right? which is asking a lot. Yeah, I, I wasn't happy. I know. I think I will have definitely have to go back and redraft. Whatever. I mean, I know the theme will be the same. Mm. <laughs> the content will be vastly different. Um, yeah. And other universities don't always ask their first year PhDs to write a chapter of their thesis at that point point in their research i um so Anne and i share one half of our supervisory mm -hmm. team is the same and i feel like in first year i did about halfway through realized that i needed more help and so started to lean more on that person but i still feel that first year was a waste i think if i could do something differently i would just go back and tell myself exactly what jess said that it's not that deep that really as long as you produce something it's okay if first year is not good second year will have good highs and lows it turns out yeah <laughs> knock on wood we'll produce something at the end of it yes if you could uh, go back to first year i'd share my work oh yeah more mm. and i've just i was saying because i read some a uh, george's one of george's chapters and george's read some of mine uh, well an article based off a chapter and reading george's chapter helped me thoroughly yesterday in writing something because you realize that nothing you produce has to be breaking and this wasn't well, this, this is not a slight <laughs> yes. against george's chapter <laughs> nothing you say has to be that good no but yeah every paragraph you write doesn't have to be breaking open the field sure yeah that's a good point uh, because especially if you're writing extremely original research half your paragraphs are going to be like explaining what happened explain the situation yeah. like and it and it's like giving the context which is so important but you know uh, i it does like remind me what a thesis should look like in comparison to maybe what like a book or a chapter article like okay. a journal article could look like so i definitely share my writing because yeah. also it's also important to see what other people at your level are writing at yes. mm. like you read a journal article and you're like fuck, I wish I wrote like that. And you forget that that person has usually been through four rounds of redrafts, sometimes a professor in the yeah, field. Yeah, they've been doing like, this for a decade, yeah, exactly. maybe. And, mm -hmm. and sorry, again, that sounds like I'm saying that Georgia can't write. Georgia's like a really she eloquent writer <laughs> and her analysis is incredible. Yeah, and just reading that was just like quite refreshing and grounding. And I think it kind of speaks to a little bit of what we've already been talking about today. But when you read someone else's work, there will always be something that you are better at. I will, it's very, I can very confidently say that Jess is so much better than me at working with other scholars' work and doing her historiography and situating her work in the field. And when I read Jess's work, I know exactly why it's important because she's done such a good job of articulating that. Mm. And, you know, it's easy to see that in someone else's work and be like, oh my God, like I will never be that good at that. But you can also read their work and think, oh, okay, but... I've sort of got this unlock. You just start to recognise that we all have different strengths. Mm -hmm. And once we start reading each other's work, Jess has had some great notes for me on how to improve my use of my historiography. So yeah, we do need to help each other. It's not a competition. We're all going to get through it. Yeah, Georgia, what did you say the other day? Like, together we might make one decent historian. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I do. I'm going to need to change a light bulb. So. <laughs> Exactly. But I mean, this is it. I feel like for a long time, even maybe as recently as the people who started basically a year ahead of us, mm -hmm. PhD was this very solitary activity mm -hmm. at Manchester where you didn't 
you might go to like a reading group or something but I don't know many people who were doing a lot of work sharing or even forming particularly yeah supportive friendship groups groups that are sort of as committed to helping each other out as we have sort of ended up with just through a community effort I think it's turning out that our sort of group is producing some really exciting work I think just off the back of taking care of each other and it it makes people want to come into uni and therefore do the work I know during the past few weeks people have actually been really struggling with the lack of interaction and how and saying how that's impacted on their research and their work like literally not seeing people has impacted on their research and so it kind of yeah bolsters that point that being with each other physically and just speaking to each other can really help you like literally having an hour at lunch speaking to other people yeah it's so useful even when you don't talk directly about your work there's something about being together and articulating ideas together or talking around your research that helps keep it turning over in your brain so that like I don't know in the middle of the night last night I was kind of like oh I need to say this and it was off the back of like half a conversation that me and you had, <laughs> had yesterday I never have work dreams anymore I don't it wasn't Thank god <laughs> it was a sort of drifting off thought right yeah, a, yeah. a full-on dream I remember like waking up one time like trying to have an argument with like Paul Gilroy and I was like (laughs) you're not there yet Jess (laughs) but when you do you'll be prepared yes (laughs) you psychically prepared I don't think it's like permeated my psyche that much to be honest that's good maybe I don't know sometimes maybe I think it should I can just fall asleep and not dream there you go I think dream small (laughs) not at all yeah if I was gonna say anything to anyone who was starting a PhD because I think I was a little bit like Anne at the start of first year in terms of like not engaging with other people as much as it turns out I wanted to I think I was a bit afraid of being judged and sort of maybe maybe ironically maybe not a bit judgmental myself a bit of a like it's natural like yeah. yeah sure i'm doing a phd but i'm not a nerd yeah <laughs> but we're all nerds we are all nerds. i know yeah i've made my peace with it now but yeah i i would go back and say to myself like don't have this superior attitude don't be you know over there thinking that you've got other friends so why would you want to have phd friends yes. my phd friends are the most important mm. relationships that i've formed in terms of surviving this and feeling even slightly healthy about it and not letting it ruin my life 24 7 <laughs> especially as like a newbie to a new town yes for, uh, yeah. from, and quite yes. a lot of people obviously and here from another country but you've lived in the uk quite a long time but there are other members of our sort of extended circle who are living in the uk for like the first couple of years of their life mm-hmm. and you know being able to help them bed in so we have talked for a really long time. Yeah, my tummy is making some wild noises. I really hope it doesn't come up on the microphone. I think the microphones have been running a little quiet. Okay. So I look forward to editing that. Yeah. Um, but Anne, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been really nice. It's kind of just been like a rerun of sort of like a lunchtime chat. But that's I love nice. it. Yeah, I, just I liked it. I'm happy to come back.
and come back every re- week. Re-return re- next year. Yeah, 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 you'll yeah. Have next year. yeah, definitely. And you're like, I hate everyone in the grad school. I like dread going in yep. every single day. I go in, sit down, do my work, leave. So, as always, Jess, thank you for being here as a host. Thank you for uh, also being here as a host. And don't tell your supervisor what you heard here today. What happens on the podcast stays on the podcast. Not Safe for Publication is a podcast by and for the research students of the Faculty of Humanities at the University of Manchester. If you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Twitter at NSFP Podcast, or you can email us at nsfppodcast at gmail.com. Our intro and outro music is Hat the Jazz by Twin Musicom.